Well, as you know, <clears throat> last time we uh, entered into the Pergamos church period, probably the most important part of church history. Um, certainly the bleakest, but certainly probably the most important. And I told you how that that church period runs about 300 A.D. to about 500 A.D. And uh, it brings us up to the beginning of the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages start about 500 A.D. and they're not over to about uh, 1500 with the Reformation. So a thousand years um, that uh, this world is thrown into darkness. And uh, this Pergamus church period is the reason... Uh, for the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages, by definition, and we'll study it when we get into it, but just so you're, you know, can have some of this information now. The Dark Ages is nothing more uh, than the time that the Roman Catholic Church comes to world power and runs the world. And she has one goal, and that is to wipe out Bible Christianity and get rid of any of the uh, uh, manuscripts that came out of Antioch. And she does this with great fervor. And uh, when she takes the Word of God off the planet, basically, and uh, tries to kill God's people and severely suppresses the Word of God, uh, it throws this world into darkness. And uh, so it's commonly called the Dark Ages. It's the time when uh, Europe is thrown into the catalyst of, of uh, the feudal system, uh, where the Roman Catholic Church basically runs the whole world and everybody else in humanity is on the bottom of the pile. And um, it starts with Pergamus. Pergamus begins that process when we studied last time the, the pagan Rome, uh, and we talked about the 22 or 23 emperors that we came through from Christ's time right up to the time of 300 A.D., uh, we find that uh, the uh, end of the Roman Empire, as far as the pagan concept is concerned, with the last Roman emperor as we know it, and that'll be Constantine, and we talked about him last time. And Constantine uh, uh, is given credit for the end of the uh, pagan Rome, and, and in all of the history books, and just about everything you're going to hear on television and documentaries and uh, wherever you go. I was watching something last night. I don't even for sure what it was, but I wasn't really paying attention to it, but it was, I was doing something else while it was on, and it was talking about how Constantine brought Christianity to Europe. And uh, uh, everybody who's, and anybody other than a Bible believer uh, will, uh, will give Constantine the credit for uh, bringing in the Christianity. And of course, when we talk about Christianity, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, we have also seen now the Bible manuscripts from Antioch. We've seen them go into Egypt, type of the world, how they were corrupted down there through uh, the uh, uh, Pantanus, Philo, and uh, uh, Origen, and those guys. And now we're going to see how it finally gets into Rome and the whole circle is complete. And, uh, you know, this sets up, uh, this whole thing goes back to... Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where you have the first prophecy in the Bible about God and the devil. And there it talks about the seed of the serpent shall bruise the head of the woman. And of course, there's two seeds in your Bible. And the seed of the woman will be Christ, and the seed of the serpent will be the Antichrist. And uh, it works its way all down through history. And you're seeing 
hear part of that happen and unfold. And that's why I told you about the garment changes that the devil pulls off uh, down through history. And the Pergamos church period, without a doubt, is the key time. We talked about how that when Constantine, um, you know, brought the uh, uh, pagans into the church and everybody became Christian through baptism and and whatever, how that the pagans bring in all of their pagan holidays. And we looked at these last week, Christmas, Easter, birthdays, marriage ceremonies. All that now at one point was pagan, but now become Christian. And December 25th, which down through the history of the world has been the birthday of Baal, the sun god, now suddenly shows up as the birthday of Jesus Christ. And uh, Ashtar, you know, the god of fertility, now suddenly becomes Easter and connected with the resurrection and the lilies and all that stuff. And, um, and that, uh, you know, that's exactly what uh, you, you've got. Now turn over to Colossians chapter 2, and I'll show you. Uh, a good verse that you want to put along here. I think it's probably a good verse for, uh, a hardline verse for Christians. And look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. And he's talking about here the the Christ's death on the cross and what it accomplished. But there's a verse in here that you ought to see to go along with what we're talking about here. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that would be the Old Testament, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Basically what it's saying there, that he, we talked about this in Romans, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, he nailed it to the cross, and by dying on the cross, he abolished the law. And having spoiled principalities and powers, that'll be the devil and his crowd, he made a show of them openly, triumphantly uh, over them in it. Now, because of all that, look at verse 16. Let no man therefore, let no man therefore, therefore being because the blotting of the handwriting of ordinances that he took out of the way and he spoiled the prince of the powers and all that stuff. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or in a new moon, or of the Sabbath days. Now, he's telling you right there in all of those things, when it says in meat, that means in the meat offerings, like in the Old Testament, see? Or it says, or in drink, that's not talking about going out and getting something to drink, that's a drink offering in the, in the concept of the Old Testament law. Or in respect of a holy day. And the reason why he says that is because for you and me as the church, there are no more holy days. There is no Christmas. There is no Easter. Now, I know we celebrate them and we do it because it's part of our culture, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but it's like I said last week. I have a Christmas tree, and I celebrate it, and, you know, I don't do much for Easter, but the kids have Easter egg hunts. But anyway, the bottom line is uh, there are no holy days now. Now, that that means that if Christianity wants to observe them, I have no problem with it. But as far as I'm concerned, I understand that in the New Testament, there's, every day is alike. There is no holy days. There's nothing set apart on any day, anywhere, shape, or form that is for God. And uh, that, doesn't, that took place in the Old Testament. It does not take place in the New Testament because he lives in your heart and reigns every day. So there's no physical days. The physical days went along with the physical kingdom. The kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom. It's inside you, so your spiritual uh, thing is on the inside. 
And then he says this, look at verse 17, just throw it in here. He said, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come. Now, the reason why he says they're a shadow of things to come, because when we get over here in the millennium, they're going to be back in effect again. See? But then he goes on and he says, but the body is of Christ. That's you and me. So right now, there is no holy days for you and me. So, um, you know, the idea that Christmas is a nice time of the year and you see the nativity scenes and all that stuff, that's fine. It's wonderful. I'm all for it. You know what? Merry Christmas. Merry Christ Mass. Xmas. X marks the spot. You know, whole nine yards. Bottom line is, for a Bible believer, you have to understand that there are no holy days that God recognizes. And that's just the bottom line. And that's a very important verse. Uh, So you saw here that... uh, you know, and tonight we're going to move on into the next part of the uh, Pergamus Church period and put this whole thing together, and that'll bring us up to the first Christian council, the Council of Nicaea. Now, you should know by now that old Constantine did nothing more than, than unite his empire to better control it and the Christians. And, uh, you know, whatever we talk about Constantine, again, we know that the devil uh, stays in power through nations and the men who run those nations. So when I talk about Constantine and what he's doing, you might as well just mark it down that this is the devil doing it through Constantine. And Constantine was this demon-possessed and as phony as a $3 bill. And uh, he taught salvation by baptism, and he himself, I think I told you this last week, he himself was not baptized till a week before his death. Uh, and after bringing, being sprinkled, he wasn't even immersed, but after being sprinkled, he told everybody, including God, that he deserved eternal life uh, because of who he was. You know, Constantine dies, uh, and when he dies, uh, if you would read the account that Eusebius writes of it, and remember now Eusebius is called the father of church history, and uh, he writes a very a kind of like a running account of what's taking place. He's a contemporary. He lives around this period of time. And he worships the ground that uh, uh, he worships the ground that Constantine walks on. And uh, when he dies, according to, uh, to according to Eusebius, you'd think that the world stopped revolving. And I've never I, I've read his his account of it uh, several times over my life, and it makes you want to throw up every time you read it. I mean, you'd have thought the world had come to an end. I mean, uh, he talks about that when Constantine died and split hell wide open, that the markets closed and people walked through the streets weeping, you know, armed bodyguards beat their heads against the wall and screamed and jumped on their swords in grief to be with their master. And people ran around the city screaming and wailing at the death of their protector and their savior, Constantine. Uh, I mean, uh, this disgusting and revolting scene could only be equaled by the lunatic friend displaying at the death of people like Michael Jackson and, uh, you know, the other world idiots out there that, you know, people get into. And uh, people never change. When he's dead, uh, his corpse is deposited in a gold coffin and then placed between 12 other coffins, representing the 12 apostles, uh, making Constantine the 13th. And if you catch the subtlety of that, that he's, they're linking him up to the apostle Paul, uh, who was the 13th apostle. And of course, uh, you know, uh, and then the other, uh, you know, the other 13 coffins were put on a high place and Constantine's coffin was ringed by candlelight and was a, and as Eusebius says it, it was a marvel to those that saw it, a marvel such as man, no man, <laughs> and no man under the sun had ever beheld 
on earth since the world began. And that's Eusebius, volume 4, page 66, on the death of Constantine. And uh, there's a very good reason for old Eusebius to write all this trash about his buddy Constantine. From all that we have mentioned so far of what Constantine did to damn Christianity and to set up the Roman Catholic Church, there's one more thing that he did, and uh, old Eusebius was the willing tool that really pulled it all off and put it all together. And uh, old Constantine, uh, as we'll you know, see as we come down through there, what he does is not only does he start the Roman Catholic Church, but he also is responsible for the first Bible of, of, of perversion to get into the hands. They head up this new church. And, uh, and you're going to see here how, how the Bible started in Antioch in the Greek manuscripts. We already saw how it went to Alexandria where they corrupted it. Now there's one more piece to our puzzle, and that is how does he get from Alexandria into Rome? And here's how it happened. When Constantine starts setting up his kingdom of Christianity and he puts a an end to heathenism, he gets a hold of Eusebius. And uh, Eusebius is a bishop. He's a pastor of Caesarea. And uh, that's where Paul was for a while before he finally went to Rome. And he asked for uh, 50 copies of the New Testament Bible. Uh, these uh, 50 copies are, he's, are, very, are to be done very specifically. In fact, the letter is still preserved in the British Museum that Constantine wrote to Eusebius uh, in ordering these letters. And, uh, oh, Eusebius, I mean, boy, he just about has a heart attack. Here is the head of the church now, uh, the great Constantine, wants him to uh, get the Bibles and, uh, you know, so that the truth can march on, you know. And so guess where he goes? Come on, guess. You know where he goes? He goes right down to Alexandria, Egypt, and gets 50 copies of Origen's work. And he brings those 50 copies. They were done on measured vellum scrolls. Vellum is tan animal hides. They're done in the classical Greek, not the Corne Greek. Greek language at this time is two forms. The Corne, which is the common ordinary language of the people, and the classical, which is the, the language of the Gnostics, so to speak. So uh, he gets to the point where uh, he goes down to Alexandria, Egypt, and gets 50 copies of Origen. And uh, you remember him, that's the guy who believed that God and the devil would be pals later on and didn't believe in a resurrection, no literal Bible, no literal kingdom, and the man who changed the Bible in over 60,000 places. And uh, to match the Greek and Roman philosophy and the culture uh, that went along with it. So he got the Bible from the greatest Bible rejector all down through the history of the church. And the man who uh, tore up the Bible and, uh, and, and, and changed it in so many different places that when it came out, it, it didn't even match any way, shape, or form the original. And of course, that would be origin. And uh, this is how it goes from Antioch to Alexandria, and then it makes its way into Rome. This Bible, once it, Constantine gets his hands on it, about 330, 320, somewhere in there, uh, by about 415, Jerome takes the, uh, the Greek text that comes out of Alexandria, Egypt, and translates it into a Latin Bible uh, in 415 A.D. And that Latin Bible becomes what we know as Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And that's the Bible that goes down through the Dark Ages. And uh, 
Later, it's translated into English and becomes the ASV, the RSV, the NSV, the NIV, and all the other Bibles in the world today. And, uh, but uh, our two lines of Bibles are very clear now because uh, this Constantine deal uh, is, really, uh, is really the place where you can start to see it happening. Up to this point, it's all been kind of nebulous, kind of like smoke swirling around with people believing weird things and maybe this guy over here is corrupting the Bible and this guy over here is teaching baptism regeneration, this guy over here is teaching the Gnostics and it's all kind of spread out. And a little bit, everybody's got a little bit of everything, but nothing's been consolidated. Now, when we get to Constantine and he consolidates his kingdom and starts a religion, this is where we start to see it all come. Obviously, he needs a Bible if you're going to have a church. So he gets a Bible, and in time, that Bible becomes the Jerome's Latin Vulgate. A little bit later on, it gets retranslated again around, uh, oh, I don't know, eight or 900, becomes what they call the Douay Reims. And Douay Reims out of Reims, Germany. That's where it was translated, yes. There are... Uh like uh, kind of origin of those fellows were translating like their own Bible. Were they actually using uh, the, the right Bible, like from like kind of like the copies of the originals that the apostles had written, and then putting in the Greek philosophy? Or well, what they were doing is just like what you would do. Say, uh, let's put it this way: say I wrote out, uh, say I wrote out uh, a sermon, one of my sermons, word for word, and in that sermon you had eight or nine, twenty pages of my sermon. And what happened was, is you took that sermon home and you read it over a couple of times and you thought to yourself, well, you know what? I don't really agree with everything he's saying. So you would go in there and cross out what you didn't like and then add what you do like. And you do it to the tune of five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten places on every page. So when it's done, the sermon doesn't even resemble the way that I taught it. You see what I'm saying? And that's basically what they did with the whole New Testament. But, I mean, they started out with the right New Testament. Yeah, they, they, got, they got their hands on the, uh, the same way that the Greeks uh, got their hands on the Old Testament and then corrupted it. And then, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, boys down in Alexandria got a handle on the New Testament. And what they did was they went to work on it. And this is called biblical criticism in your Bible colleges today. And this is exactly what a Bible scholar will do. Most of you have never been to Bible college, but if you'd go to a Bible college, you'd take a class on biblical criticism. And biblical criticism is basically uh, what the Bible really should mean, but it doesn't say because it's a bad translation. So the guy will stand up there and take a passage of Scripture that will be very clear and plain in your King James Bible, and he'll tell you that that's not a good translation, and this is what it really means from the Greek, and then he'll retranslate it, telling you, changing the words in it because it's such a bad translation, and so then he'll tell you what the verse means, and that's called biblical criticism. They do the same thing today uh, in every Bible college on, this, on the face of this planet. Back then, they did it with the New Testament, and they corrupted it. Today, they don't take on the New Testament as much as anymore as the books of the Bible or the verses in the Bible. And uh, if you were a young student at Bible college and you were in a class, a Greek class, uh, they would tell you that, uh, they would tell you that, uh, you know, that your King James Bible is not a reliable translation. It's got a lot of errors in it. And uh, he would then take a Greek New Testament and he would show you the errors in your King James Bible. 
And you know how he will show you your errors in the King James Bible? Because he'll use the Greek New Testament to come out of Alexander. It's already been changed in over 60,000 places, and those 60,000 places will be the errors. See, that's what he does. That's what he does. Nothing's really changed. Nothing's really changed. Constantine, all he did was put the thing full force into movement, and then he got a bunch of little other guys out there that, that did the same thing that uh, Origen did. I mean, that's all that happened. So our two lines of Bibles are very clearly formed and defined for us. There's a Greek New Testament from Antioch that is being translated into the Old Latin. Uh, and you're going to find that, the, uh, uh, that translation from Antioch, is by the time we get to about 300, 400 A.D., and I know we haven't even covered it yet, but we will. We'll come back and come through it from the other side here. We've got to lay out one side first, then we'll come back and lay out the other side. But by the time we get to the same time period that we're dealing with with Constantine, you're going to find that the true text out of Antioch has been translated in almost every major language on the face of the planet and, uh, um, and, and how it uh, is laid itself out. So it's a situation where everything about it has absolutely, uh, the text at Antioch has spread around the world. It goes into what we call the old Latin. It goes into what we call uh, uh, the, uh, the old Syriac, which is akin to Syria of Antioch. It goes into Egyptian, and it's called the Coptic in Egyptian. And uh, you're going to find that uh, almost every language on the planet by 400 A.D. had a copy in their language of the right text that came out of Antioch. And so I don't want to give the impression that while this is all going on down here, that the true Bible believers aren't doing their job. They are. But you're going to see that Constantine's movement to consolidate all the religion was another place where the devil stepped in to stop what the true child of God was trying to do. And that's how the thing kind of lays itself out uh, all the way through there. But it, in, by 150, you have a Latin version out of Antioch. Uh, by 170, you have an old Syriac version. And uh, that the common ordinary Christian is using because they know uh, where the heresy is coming from. And before 400 A.D., probably over 100 languages had a copy of the Bible in their language, or the New Testament anyhow, in their language that was the right text out of Antioch. You want to remember that. But like I said, we'll come back and we'll look at that later when we get back and come through the other line. And... Uh, and uh, old Clement, Philo, Origen, and Constantine, and Eusebius, uh, they take that original text out of Antioch. It gets corrupted and by the Gnostics and the scholars down in Alexandria. And uh, then it moves up to Alexandria and comes into Rome. And from here on out, the line is very easy to follow once you have the definitive that we've spent the time doing. We've come up now to what we've talked about before in, in part. We're going to look at it in, in substance now is the... Uh, first great Christian council, and that'll be the council of Nicaea. I told you before that when we came through the book of Acts, we saw in the book of Acts how that uh, uh, the, uh, the whole concept of, uh, of uh, councils in the Bible are always bad. And all on our chart up here, you have all of these different councils in the blue circles. Every one of them are called by the Roman Catholic Church. And every one of them is called, again, to get control over the Bible-believing Christians that Rome can have more power. Uh, up to the Council of Trent in 1546, 
that in the Council of Trent, they put out 130 or 140 anathemas against anybody who didn't believe the Roman Catholic Church. That would be a Bible believer. Or 150 curses. That's what anathema means. Uh, 150 curses on uh, anybody who was against the Roman Catholic Church. All of the councils, wherever you find them, down through history. The moment you hear about a Christian council someplace, you know it's bad. You don't even have to spend any time investigating it, though you probably should. But it's, it's, it's that's that simple. So it's no wonder that the first council of Nicaea that we have here in 325 uh, is for political purposes. And, uh, you know, Constantine... Um, Constantine, for, or basically Rome, for 313 years from the time of Christ, had been giving the Jews and the Christians a fit. Uh, they had destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, they crucified Christ. They martyred the Christians. They martyred most of the apostles. And uh, for the first 313 years, they were very, very hard uh, on, those, uh, on those Christians. We talk about the 10 official persecutions that they went through talked about the 22 or 23 Roman emperors I gave you last week. All of them, you know, all of them uh, were against Christianity, uh, some more than others, but at the end of the day, uh, they were no friend of Bible Christianity. We talked about how that the Constantine, you know, saw the vision at Melvian Bridge, 313. That's where he has his phony conversion. And that's what the devil uses because the devil knows. The devil, the devil understands history and the lessons of history much better than we do. And he knows that the time is fast coming where nations are not going to be able to run the world anymore. He has to have one thing that will, he can run all the nations through because he knows he cannot run the world through one nation. The world's getting too big. In the Old Testament, it wasn't a problem. You know why? Because the world was very small. When we talk about the Hittite Empire or the Babylonian Empire or the uh, Phoenician Empire or the uh, Egyptian Empire, we're talking about a localized spot on the planet. We're talking about a piece of land probably no bigger than maybe 2,000 miles in any direction. That's not very big compared to the whole world. The world was very small back then, and the Middle East was the world. So when the Egyptians took over, you know, they conquered the known world. Well, the known world was only about 1,600 miles in any direction. When the, when the Babylonians took it over or the Assyrians took it over or Persia took it over, they're all in a local area there. So the devil can run that through, he can run that through a nation. And that's why in Daniel 2, you have those nations. First of all, he ran it through Egypt. When Egypt got whacked, then he ran it through Babylon. When Babylon got whacked, he ran it through Assyria. When Assyria got whacked, he ran it through Persia. When Persia got whacked, he ran it through Rome or Greece. And when Greece got whacked, he ran it through Rome. Under the Roman Empire, oh, something changes. And that's an expansion of the known world. The Roman Empire... Uh, as powerful as she was, she reached into most places in Europe. She got places and she expanded the world. Well, the devil knew that this was going to happen. The devil knew better than anybody else that someday Christopher Columbus was going to sail the ocean blue and wind up on North America and then all the other guys were going to follow over. He knew that the earth was going to get bigger and the world was going to get bigger. And he also knows that he cannot run the world anymore through nations. He can, but not by any one nation. 
he has to get one religion that all the nations will buy into, and then he'll run all the nations through the religion. See how it works? Now, that's a very vital piece of information to have. It speaks to your history of understanding exactly how the devil is looking at this. He's looking down through history, and he knows that up to this point, he could run the world uh, through these pagan Roman, uh, these pagan emperors, and then on down through that, through the nations, Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, because that area that he was running, he didn't care about America. There was nobody here but a bunch of Indians. He didn't care about the Congo or Africa, or he cared about the Middle East, because that's where it all started, and that's where it's developing from. So he's getting a handle on it where it started. He's not running around Antarctica trying to get Eskimos to go out and commit Baal worship. The hotbed is in the Middle East around that country that he knows is going to be God's city, Jerusalem. So that's what he's working at. As the world expands, he has to expand. And he now knows that he cannot run it through any one nation. Now he's going to have to run all of the nations. Oh, what do I need to run all the nations? What will put all the nations in my pocket? Oh, I know what it will. Religion. This is what Constantine is doing. This is what the devil is doing through Constantine. The devil now knows that this thing's going to expand. It's going to get bigger. He now knows that this thing is going to get out of control. So he has to get control. And he needs a church, a religion to do it. He needs a religion that in time will become a church-state religion. What does that mean? It means that the country's official religion will be his religion. That means that every body into it will be born into his church. That's what he wants. That's what he needs. He needs a religion that is so powerful that the kings will be afraid not to go out and kill Christians because they'll be afraid that they won't go to heaven when they die. He needs a religion that is so powerful that he can sway anybody, any place politically because of the fact that his church has power. And through it, he'll run nations. That's why when you get over to Revelation chapter 17 and 18 about Babylon, mystery religion, the mother of Harland, it says that all the nations of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. She infiltrates every nation on this planet, including America. But this is what he's doing. For 313 years, Rome had been giving everybody problems. Now the devil knows he's going to lose that. In a very short time, and we're going to maybe get into it tonight, maybe we won't. I don't remember how far we're going to go tonight. But in a very, very short time, about another 120 years, maybe under 150 years, Europe is going to boil over, and uh, it's going to be tough for any one nation to function uh, running the world. And we'll talk about it a little bit later on. And the devil knows this. So finally he gets Constantine to see this goofy vision. Constantine falls for it like a, you know, and, and, and then becomes a phony Christian. And Constantine also understands that if he wants to keep his, his, his power, he's going to have to get control of it. And so what better way to do that than to set himself up as the head of the religion? And this is what he does. And he uh, changes, and we saw this last week, he changes Pagel Rome to Papal Rome, just like that. In one failed sweep, he changes the whole concept of what Rome was for the last 2,000 years, and now it's come to the point where it's now Christian. 
In reality, we saw it last week, nothing changes. He does pass, and I think I've told you this before, the Edict of Milan. And that, was, uh, that grants religious freedoms to many Christians. But it also is what he passed that brought in all of the garbage, the Christmas, the Easter, and all the other things that we've already seen, the pagan teachings that help make, turn pagan Rome into papal Rome. And what the Roman Catholic Church does, she brings in all of these pagan ideas, all of these pagan concepts that work their way all the way back to Babylon and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and all the way back to Genesis 10. And now they become Christian, just like that, just like that. Now, Constantine's empire was very vast because the world is spreading. It stretches all the way from Rome on one end, all the way over to Turkey and beyond on the other end. I mean, it's a vast kingdom. And, uh, you know, it, it, it goes from Palestine to Egypt, all of Asia Minor, and west to France, Spain, and Italy. And it's a vast concept. And he knows now that he has to pull it together, and the only thing that will pull it together is not politics, but religion. The two things that the devil will always use is religion and politics. And he'll get the religion first, and then the religion will set the politics. And off you go. And that's happened all down through history. So what he does is he calls the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And... Um, I already told you this will be just like all the other councils. It'll be just kind of a religious fiasco. And uh, we have seen, as I said, in our studies already that the true body of Christ is, is the silent minority here. They're the ones that's out doing the work. Uh, there wasn't any of them there at the Council of Nicaea. But what happens is this. Because now, and this is, you got to see this. Because so much heresy had been floating around. Because Christianity, uh, in the bad sense, had been kind of floating around and doing its own thing for almost 300 years now, there's a lot of weird teachings out there. You have the true Bible line up here that is staying right on the task, and they aren't deviating at all anymore. But you have the line down here with hundreds of false, goofy teachings. You have books of the Bible that people are trying to put in. You have the idea of Mary now, where, her place with, in all of this. The idea has been floating around for a number of years that well, Mary was the mother of God, therefore she must be a deity. Why? Because when the pagans come into the church, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, everybody down through history in their religion to Baal had to have a female deity to substantiate the religion. So now Mary begins to come to the surface. The idea of baptism regeneration, the idea of no literal return of Christ, the idea that works for salvation, the idea of, of a priest class over the common people. All this stuff was floating around out there. And at the same time, a lot of issues had arisen about who Christ was. There's a teaching going around that Jesus Christ, and we talked about this last time, was not really God in the flesh, that he was just some kind of lesser God that God created. And that heresy is floating around. There's another heresy floating around that, uh, that he was Jesus Christ and God's son up to the point on the cross, and then God left him, and he just died as a human being on the cross. That's floating around. And then there's the teaching that he was, he was not God at all, and he was just a good teacher, and that's floating around. So what the, devil ha the devil's great at 
letting all this stuff get out there and get going, and it's just swirling like smoke. But now it's getting bigger. He has to pull it together. And so he starts a church, and this church now is going to be so powerful that it's going to take all of the bad teachings that have been floating around and going to categorically put them into a doctrinal form that's going to make up the foundational teachings of this new church. It just takes some time. But with the beginning of this is the Council of Nicaea. And uh, a number of issues and teachings have arisen from all of the apostasy and all of the heresy um, that has really been a problem. And you've got to remember that these Bible-believing groups, and we're going to talk about them in detail later on, but these Bible-believing groups are causing a lot of problems. I mean, they're not your mishmouth, mealy-mouthed Christians like you have today. I mean, they take a stand, and boy, I'll tell you what, on no uncertain terms. And they had, a lot of them, when, the, when, the, when they began to, uh, when, the, when the heresy began to be circulating around, they basically just checked out and did their own thing. And uh, one of the controversies that had, that had come up was the Donatist controversy. And the Donatists were a very early Bible-believing group of people. They believe exactly what you and I believe. Their issues that they're, that, that are circulating out there is what to do with people who have defected from the church and, you know, and, 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 want, and, and, and then want to come back. And they're making them, they're making them, holding them accountable because of the fact that they left the true church uh, their church, the Bible-believing church, and now they're out here fooling around here and they break from them and they won't have anything to do with them and they mark them and they hold them accountable for being heretics and departing from the truth. And that is making a lot of people mad. That's causing a lot of issues. You have a guy by the name of Novatius and his people are the Novatians. And he's got issues with the teaching that's floating around about the Lord's Supper and baptism being part of your salvation. These guys were pastors, just like me. Put yourself in a modern-day scenario. Well, we are in a modern-day scenario. What am I talking about? We are in the same situation. You got everybody out there on this planet that believes that the King James Bible is no good. You got everybody out there on the planet that believes that, you know, that uh, everything goofy about the Bible. And yet here you have one little group, Old Past Baptist Church, and there's other groups out there too. But the bottom line is this. We are, we are today in the Laodicean church period exactly what the Novatians and the uh, Donatists were in their day. The whole bottom line of Christianity has departed from the Bible and went after something else. And there's one little group of people that says, "Uh uh-uh, we're not moving. We're going to stay with the Bible. We're going to believe what it says. And they were severely persecuted. Now, we're not severely persecuted, but you all know people that, that talk about what a cult we are and, and, and uh, you know, uh, that uh, it ain't a real church because we're in a basement and, uh, and, and all of those goofy things. Not that they would know what a new ch- real church was if they ran into it with their car, but the bottom line is the fact that, they, that but you get a taste of it, you see, because all of modern Christianity, all the big guys back then, like the big guys today, they're all following the wrong line and they're all leading their people uh, the wrong way. 
But these little guys, were not gonna, they're not going to fold up. They said, you know what? Baptism doesn't save you, and the Lord's Supper is what it is in the Bible, and it can't save you. And they broke from the rest of the people, but it caused a controversy. It caused a controversy. When some of these people left the church and went after the other churches and went the other way, they broke fellowship with them. They said, you know what? We have nothing to do with you. We're going to stay true to the Word of God. We don't want your heresy infecting our church. That caused some problems. Caused some problems. It caused some problems just like today. Our stand on the Bible and what we believe and what we teach and what we hold fast to is might as well be on Mars compared to what most Christians believe and understand. And you know what? I don't know what to tell you. You got an issue you're going to have to deal with because the Bible is still the Bible. You had the Manichians, and they're another Bible-believing group. And with them, issues about the natures of Christ, the deity of Christ. The issue was Christ's very God and the doctrine of the Trinity was being, all these people were moving away from it, and they were staying true to it, and these guys were not bashful about it. And, of course, it's causing problems. Those are the rifts that, that Constantine has to get his hand on. And, of course, they had issues about the place of Mary in Christianity. And all these Bible-believing groups were basically getting up and preaching. The only thing holy about Mary was her socks. And they're not giving her any veneration at all. Uh, The idea now is coming up that we should worship Mary, and that's by 400 A.D., that the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was sinless, she's equal with Christ, and all of these things are out there, and these Bible-believing groups are standing and holding the line, much like we're to hold the line today with all the junk that goes on in Bible Christianity. It's not the same issues, but it's the same mess, same deal. And, of course, this is exactly the, the issues that had come up. And uh, these issues were going back and forth, and uh, the learned men of 175 to 325, they were arguing about it. They were, uh, the Bible believers were holding fast to it, and they were causing a stink over the thing. And uh, the whole body of Christ was, 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 was in an uproar uh, with a true biblical line holding it. And, and then on top of that, all the other heresy, they were arguing about that. And, of course, um, Constantine has to, has to deal with that. And, of course, the real Christians weren't worried about having a, having a council or a fellowship meeting uh, of all the heads of Christianity They were out there winning the world to Christ and dying in the process for believing the Bible is the final authority. But you see, with this group up here, down here, the Bible had ceased to be the authority a long time ago. When we first saw men, saved men, deviating from the Word of God and making up things about the Bible that aren't biblical, that's where the whole thing started. And now look how far we've come. What, 300 years later? Oh, boy. You talk about... When I say it, you know, and people laugh, you give the devil an inch and he'll drive an 18-wheeler through it. And that's exactly what he do. All he needed was a short period of time. And 300 years after Christ is dead, the body of Christ is split. The bottom line that's going to take over the world is absolutely shot. And nobody believes the Bible anymore. You always have that thin little line at the top that always stays true to the Word of God. Right up to the end. Right up to the end. Right up to the end. And, of course, when we see this church pergamus, they now know that 
it gets married to the world. And I'm going to show you how this thing works. So Constantine calls this council together to thrash out, from his standpoint, all the doctrinal controversies. If he's going to start a church, then he's got to get unified on what that church believes. And he's got to establish, in his mind, the truth that it's going to follow, even though that it's nothing associated with the truth. So what happens that he calls the Council of Nicaea? Now, you would think that, and this is exactly where it's at, you would think that, you know, when I say Council of Nicaea, that they're going to work out all of the problems throughout all of his kingdom. He basically invites 300 pastors to this conference, this council, 300. There probably is 100,000 bishops out there that are pastoring churches. But he calls 300, and we know the 300 that he's going to call are probably ones that are in line with where he's at. And these 300 pastors are going to set the doctrinal teachings and the doctrinal things that the church is going to believe for everybody else. That sound familiar to you? Right now, you're getting a health bill signed over there in Washington, D.C. that everybody's put together that nobody wants. And you know what? You ain't got a thing to say about it. You know why? Because they over there got the power and you got nothing. That's what happened here. Who's going to dispute Constantine? So you got about 300 bishops that show, show up, and uh, that's about one-tenth of all the bishops in his empire. And these 300 men fix the teachings of what is heresy and what isn't heresy, and also t- fix it of who's going to be called a heretic and who isn't. And I guarantee you, Bible-believing Christianity is going to come out on the short end of the stick one more time. When they all assembled at the, you know, at the given signal, they all, this is a, Eusebius writes this record now in his, in his writings, and he covers it pretty well. Uh, when they all are assembled at the, at, at the council at a, at a special given single, they all arose from their seats, and the emperor came in, and uh, Eusebius writes, and I quote, The emperor Constantine descend to us like a heavenly messenger of God, covered with gold and gems. Hmm, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. His glorious, his glory, his glory, uh, uh, his glorious presence—a very tall, slender, full of beauty, strength, and majesty. With his external adornment, he united the spiritual ornaments of the of the fear of God, modesty, humility, uh, which could be seen in his downcast eyes in his walk. When Constantine appeared, uh, approached the golden throne, uh, prearranged for him, he stopped until the bishops gave him the sign. Uh, and that, probably the same one when somebody cut you off going down the freeway. But anyway, <laughs> he stopped until the bishops gave him the sign. And after uh, they had all resumed their seats, uh, then he sits down. And, of course, it sounds like an audience of the Pope. And at the council, the big blowout, obviously, was the issue of the deity of Christ. Athanasius, which was one of the church fathers, he held the doctrine and took the stand for the deity of Christ. And he represented the bishops that believed that. Arius, from which we hit the word Arism, and the other church bishops, he led the group that taught that Jesus Christ was a begotten God somewhere before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, Eusebius kind of wrote the middle of the road. Constantine really didn't care one way or the other. Constantine wanted to get something in writing that they would agree on, kind of like health care. He didn't care which way it went. He just wanted to have something that both parties would not was quit fighting over. And so they came up with the aspect of the, 
uh, of the uh, uh, the of the creed of Nicaea, Nicaean creed. And he wasn't interested in the Bible uh, or truth. Uh, he just wanted a creed that all would shine to consolidate and better keep in control uh, his east-west empire. And at the Council of Nicaea, there's not one statement made. There's not one one any reference to anything about winning people to Christ or people getting saved. There's no reference in anywhere in any of it on the second coming of Christ. There's no statement any place at all on premillennialism or Christ coming back before. And there's absolutely no statement on the authority of the Word of God. After a thrashing about uh, on these doctrinal issues for a period of time, they agree, like I said, on the Nicene Creed, a set of articles that are about as biblical in their content as uh, Field and Stream magazine. They have nothing to do with anything. But what they do is they settle the great controversy of the Bible and, uh, and they begin to put everything together. And when this council is finished and they've all signed the Nicene Creed, they also have now come up and worked out what New Testament Bible Christianity is going to be in this new church. And this new church is going to be the church for the world. They now have decided everything that you're going to believe, or at least started it. At the end of the council, here's what we now have as an indoctrinal place. They all leave understanding that the pastor or the bishop is going to be over the people, not one of them anymore. Premillennialism is out, and amillennial and postmillennialism is in. And so they're going to steal the promises to the Jews, which they do. Baptism by immersion is thrown out, and now sprinkling babies has come in. Salvation through grace is out, and church membership uh, is in, that you get saved by joining a church. The literal resurrection of Christ is thrown out, and now it's it's spiritualized that uh, it was a spiritual thing. Thrown out are the doctrine of the rapture. Thrown out are the soul-winning techniques because this church is going to propagate itself by making all the countries church-state religion and in time not let anybody take birth control so it guarantees that a church continues to grow. Of course, we do that here too, so what am I complaining about? (laughs) Thrown out is the doctrine of the restoration of Israel. And last but not least, they have replaced the Bible as the final authority uh, uh, with a church that is now called Catholic. And the word Catholic, as we know from our early studies, means universal. In other words, this was the universal church. This was the church that was predestined by God to run the world. And what the devil did in one fell sweep is he changed from running the world from one particular nation to now running all of the nations through one particular religion. And boy, it was a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece. Where Constantine, with his phony conversion, was him proposing to the church of Pergamos, the Council of Nicaea was a ceremony that put the marriage together. And it married Christianity and the world, and it's now complete. And what the devil hath put together, let no man put asunder until the second coming of Christ. And it goes on from here. Nothing has changed with Rome, nothing at all. 
She's as pagan now as she was before. She's just cloaked in a false form of Christianity. She's now come to the place where she's taken the God of all the other nations and she's consolidated them in with some lame idea, an aspect of Christianity. And um, now instead of putting Christians, uh, real Christians in the Colosseum and the lions and, and, uh, because they won't accept the Roman gods, now they will kill them because they won't accept the doctrinal heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. Where before, pagan Rome killed them because they wanted to protect the, the uh, dignity of the Roman Empire. Now the Roman Catholic Church will kill them to protect the dignity of God's church. And they will be labeled as heretics. And in time, she has enough power that she can just about do whatever she wants to do. In time, she makes alliances with, with kings who have armies, and she gives them religious and political favors because she's the power of the world, and uh, their whole armies go out and wage war on Bible-believing Christians. We'll see it when we get, we get to that point. But nothing has changed. Anybody who won't accept the doctrinal heresy of the Roman Catholic Church will now be, will be, uh, uh, will be a heretic. And uh, the devil has fully uh, changed his garment one more time. After the Council of Nicaea, the Anti-Nicaean Fathers come on the scene. They're the ones that are uh, the uh, bring us through uh, to the to the post-Nicaean, and they're nothing more than Roman Catholic Catholic followers of Constantine. Constantine heads back to uh, what we know today as Istanbul, and that day it was called Byzantium, and then he changed it to he changed it to uh, Constantinople, which is Constantine city. But the bottom line it is, it goes right back to, uh, to what it once was. When he goes back to Byzantium, he leaves a bishop in charge at Rome as the head of the church. And his name is Sylvester I. He heads up the church, and as the wheels of time turn, the Roman Catholic Church uh, gets off to its official start. And uh, we have then uh, 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 what we would call a, a post nicene father. He kind of is a mixed carry over, but he carries on over in the well over into 400 A.D., and that'll be Augustine. Where Constantine establishes the doctrine for the church by bringing it all in, Augustine then takes those doctrines and forges the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. Augustine many times will be called uh, Rome's greatest theologian. He lives about 354 to 438 A.D., he comes on the scene and he takes all the heresy, the Mariology, the image worship, all of the relics, the bones, the sacraments, the concept of baptism regeneration, the concept of baby sprinkling, mortal sin, venial sins, spiritual resurrection, Roman Catholic Church, the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, which is given to Israel, and get into the church, you know, by offering money, no baptism without a bishop present, and uh, all of the things, the priest class over the laity, he, he gets all of this stuff and he solidifies it into the foundation of what the church is going to be. You can actually see through history, just like somebody molding a statue with clay, how the devil is molding his church by which he wants to run over the world. Hey, let me tell you something. Back there with Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve first had their boy, the devil stepped in and he, he tried to wipe that thing out. 
And then you come up here with Noah, and he sent down the sons of God, and uh, he tried to take over there. Then he comes back here with uh, this thing down here with the Tower of Babel, and he tries to take over it again there. Then he uses the nations down here to take over the world again. He runs you up through uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Darius and all of them up there. And then he got the Roman Empire, and he took, ran the world through that. And now he's come to the place where he knows he can't do it anymore, so now he's going to do it through a church. It's the same system. Nothing has changed. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Augustine writes a book. It's called The City of Our God, which he states that Rome has taken the place of Jerusalem and that Christianity has taken the place of the Jews. And of course, this is why they adopt the position of either amillennialism or postmillennialism. The Roman Catholic Church does not recognize the nation of Israel in any way, shape, or form. In fact, she is pro-Islam all the way down the line. When Arafat was still alive the, uh, and he tried to get the Palestinian uh, uh, concept going of the uh, uh, Palestinian state, it was the Pope that was the first nation to have them all over there for a barbecue in the Vatican and, and put a seal of approval on the Palestinian state. You know why? Because he hates the Jews. He hates the Jews. And, of course, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's some great lessons in that. There's some great lessons in that. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church and the, and the Muslims uh, fought the, the bloodiest time in history called the Crusades. And uh, they hate each other. But it goes to show you that they may hate each other and they may detest each other and neither one of them thinks the other one's going to heaven and they're all one thinks one's an infidel and the other one's, you know... Um, whatever, but at the end of the day, they can be buddies when it comes to killing Jews. And you better mark that down. You better mark that down. You better mark that down. Most people don't even know this. Saddam Hussein started the Ba'athist party. Saddam Hussein's grandfather, uh, I forget his name at this particular moment in time, but uh, uh, during World War II, when the SS divisions were uh, formed up through Himmler to uh, uh, fight the Russians, and basically the SS were the, uh, were the uh, uh, death squads of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the Third Reich, that when they got to the place where they were, uh, they were uh, being decimated in, in Russia, they just lost a lot of guys and they, they were fighting on two different fronts, they started what they called an SS Volunteers Unit. Those SS Volunteer Unit were made up of Muslims, and those Muslim uh, SS units, um, uh, they all wore, a, all SS units wore a, what they call a, um, um, a, can't think of what it is now. It's got their division on, a cuff title, it's called a cuff title. You had Adolf Hitler's bodyguard unit. That's called, on their cuff titles, it simply said Adolf Hitler. They were called the Liebenstandard, Adolf Hitler, bodyguard unit. You had, the, uh, you had the early SS uh, group called Deutschland. Deutschland is another word for German. You had another one called Germania, which is another word for Germany. You had, uh, you had uh, different SS groups that had their cuff titles on. When the, uh, when the, uh, when the Muslim groups began to uh, uh, take shape, 
Uh, they, were, they were formed up by, a, by a, a Muslim guy who had been in Germany before the war, came back during the war, was a personal friend of Adolf Hitler's, who became uh, the leader of the Muslim SS units. That would be Viking, that would be Florence Gerleon, that would be, uh, uh, there was about eight or nine of them. That great, that man there that started the SS units that uh, fought in World War II against the Russians and against the Russian Jews was Saddam Hussein's great uncle. Now, when he left the war and went back into uh, Muslim land over there uh, and raised Saddam, he taught Saddam everything he learned from the SS and Adolf Hitler. And when Saddam put the Ba'athist party together, or his, really his uncle put the Ba'athist party together, he put it up and set it up after the SS. It goes all the way back the line. Those two people have hated each other, but they'll get together on killing Jews. And you better mark that down. They'll get together on killing Jews. And that's what they did here. And uh, when he writes the city of our God, uh, then he officially states that the Roman Catholic Church has taken the place of the nation of Israel and the Jews, and now Christians, Roman Catholics, have taken the place of the nation of Israel. That's why when you go to a Roman Catholic Church, it's a mixture of Old Testament and New Testament stuff. You ever go out of the Old Testament and look at the garments that the priest wears, how he walks in the, in the tabernacle with that little incense thing that he, he swings back and forth, and they have all the different things, and they have all the stuff and the, and the things that they use back there. You go to a Roman Catholic church, the priest, the, the priest wears his same robe, he wears the same stuff. They, the stuff is all decorated. They got the little incense stuff. They do all of the stuff that goes along with it because it's a mixture of the Old Testament and the New Testament because the Roman Catholic church believes that it's taken the place of the nation of Israel, so we'll bring in the Old Testament, but it's also got Jesus Christ in it, so we'll combine it in the New Testament. And that's the way they operate. And that starts with, Constant, uh, with Augustine. And of course, uh, I told you how that when John Calvin, who lives about 1530, 1520 in there someplace, one of the reformers, uh, when he comes to the place that he starts the idea of what we call Calvinism, the idea of predestination, uh, Calvin, greatest theologian that he loved beyond belief was Augustine, a pagan, demon-possessed, unsaved man who John Calvin got the idea that God's people are predestinated uh, to go to heaven or hell. And of course, uh, you know, he got that from, from Augustine, where Augustine basically said, Rome has been predestined to be the nation for the world and a religion for the world. Calvin just twisted a little bit and said God's people have been predestined. Same system, same system. John Calvin wanted to start the Presbyterian church and set himself up as pope just like the Catholic pope has already set up in Rome. That's all that was. We'll get to that point when we get there. On May 22nd, 337 A.D., big day, very important day. Constantine dies. And the office of Roman bishop over the next few years elevates itself. At about 500 AD, the Roman bishop is now called the vicar of God or the vicar of Christ. Vicar means in place of. And now the Roman Catholic Church takes the position that whoever the Pope is, is Jesus Christ incarnate on this planet. That's why he sits on a golden throne he rules over the political and the religious kingdoms of this world. And uh, at about 500 A.D., the next pope we have in history is Gregory the Great. 
about 450. Jerome translates the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, in, uh, uh, and become the Jerome's Latin Vulgate and the official uh, Bible of Rome. And uh, now we're into the Dark Ages. Now, boy, the old whore of the Roman Catholic Church, you got to hand it to the devil, boy. I mean, I'm telling you. This is why he doesn't like the King James Bible. He doesn't like the King James Bible because the King James Bible will let you discover the face of his garments, and he doesn't like that. The material I've just given you tonight and the rest of the stuff we're going to go through here, you couldn't find in anybody's book on church history if you stayed up all night and the rest of your life and looked for it. You know why? Because they don't see it. You know why they don't see it? Because they don't believe the one book that reveals it. When the devil took the Bible out of the hands of God's people, he blinded them. And therefore, they have, to, they have to rely on getting stuff from other men to figure out what's going on. But boy, that old harlot, she looks really great. She's put on a veil now. She's got a crucifix around her neck. She's got candles on the table. She's got statues of Mary and apostles on the walls. Uh, the incense burned with its sanctified odor. And with a pious look on her heavenly face, goes right on committing fornication and bloody murder for the next 1,500 years. Nothing's changed. For the glory of God. And let me tell you something. If you don't have the absolute final authority, you'd never see her in a thousand, hundred thousand million years. She's talked about in Proverbs chapter 5. She's talked about in Proverbs chapter 7. She's defined, laid out for you in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And uh, it's all through the Bible. But you can't get it if you don't have the final authority. And, uh, you know, this, this brings us up to the end of the Pergamus church period. Now, let's read it one more time there as we close this thing out on Pergamus here. Verse 12, Revelation 2.12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write... These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now that sharp sword with two edges is the word of God. So he's going to tell you something out of the book about Pergamos. You see that thing? I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipatus, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Now, a couple of things I want you to see here in verse 13. The first thing I want you to see is Satan has a seat. We've never seen that before. He has a seat now in this period in church history because he's got a throne to sit on. That throne is in Rome. That throne will be the seat of the Vatican, of the Roman Catholic Church, of the Pope. And it says, and thou holdest fast my name. And then it says down there at the end, where Satan dwelleth. Then he's got a seat and he's dwelling someplace. And where he's dwelling is in Rome. We have now seen how this thing got established. This thing got established because of the fact that uh, uh, he would not uh, come to the place uh, where... Uh, through the period of time that this thing got developed, 
And the devil marries the church to the world through Constantine. Constantine not only sets up a kingdom physically, but he sets up a religious church by which he's going to run the world. And now Satan has a seat, and that's where he's going to dwell. You know why it's called Babylon Mystery Religion, the mother of harlots? I'll tell you why. Because it starts out with Babylon Mystery Religion. That'll be back in Genesis chapter 10 where Babylon first shows up, 9 or 10, back there someplace, early in Genesis. The mystery is, how does Babylon stay in power when Babylon gets defeated there, comes back uh, here, and then gets defeated again, and is taken over, and then winds up coming back here? How did she survive all the way down through that? You can't track it in history. Why, if you go through the history books, you'll find that Babylon was a kingdom back here, and then the Egyptian kingdom, and then you're going to find that uh, you got the Hittites, you got Israel, you got all of the nations back there in the early part, and then you got, uh, you got the uh, Egyptians, and you got the Babylonians, and you got the Assyrians, and you got the, all that line coming up to the Romans. I mean, uh, you can't trace it through history. How did a Babylon mystery religion, it's a, it's a Babylonian religion that is a mystery, how did it survive from there to there and come right through there without nobody seeing it? I'll tell you why. Who can discover the face of his garments? He changes the scenery all through history. And the thing is, this thing is a spiritual church. It's a religion. And back here, it's Baal worship. But as you come on up through here, it's Baal worship. As you come on up through here, then it switches to the Roman Catholic Church and it carries it all the way itself through and it becomes their Antichrist religion and it walks itself all the way through. And when you get to Revelation 17 and 18, when it's destroyed, it's called Babylon Mystery Religion, the mother of harlots. Every heresy and false church and false teaching on this planet comes from its mother, Baal worship. We look at like Revelations two and three in the light of the last two thousand years. How, what's the application we're looking at that at? I'm saying what now? What's the application we're applying to Revelations two and three when we, look, when we like when we look at it in like the aspect of the last two thousand years? Like, are we looking at that as like the doctrinal or like what application? As far as uh, like how we just looked at Satan's seat where Satan dwells in verse thirteen. Like, well, his like, it, it, inspiration or insp inspirationally that will be church history. Okay, so that's inspirational. That's inspirational. Like Doctrinally, it'll be seven churches in the tribulation period. Historically, these are seven churches that are in Asia Minor at the time of John's writing, exactly. that he's writing this to. Exactly. All, right. All right, where Satan's seed is and where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak. You see that thing? It starts out, it, the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam is Baal. You see how those guys in the Old Testament, Balaam and Balak, all have Baal in their name? And it says, now that, and this isn't 100% true, but this is why that almost 85 to 90% of the words in your Bible that start with J are good words, and about 85% or 90% of your words in the Bible to start with B are bad words. Now, it isn't 100% foolproof, but it's, it's 80 to 85 to 90% through. Figure it out one time. Joshua, Jesus, uh, Jericho. I mean, they're all connected with Jehovah. They're all connected with good. Baal, Balak, Balaam. 
I mean, it just, it just goes all the way down the line. So, notice, the doctrine of Balaam. So, it's a doctrine now. What is this doctrine? Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Now, that thing sacrificed unto idols that they're eating will be the host that the Roman Catholic Church comes up with around 400 A.D. of the sacrament, and it becomes the consecrated wafer to become the literal body of Christ. And so she eats things sacrificed unto idols and commits fornication. The fornication will be spiritual fornication against God. Verse 15, so, that, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Notice it's doctrines now. It's not just things floating around. In verse 6 of the last couple of, that's church in the last chapter, or this same chapter, it was the deeds of the Nicolaitan. Now it's the doctrine. And of course, if you want to take that thing back to Balaam there in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25, you'll get a great insight into, into what's going on and uh, into com- great comparisons. So thou hast also them the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of thy mouth. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Now that hidden manna, that hidden manna will be the old Latin and the, and the old uh, Syriac and will be the uh, text out of Antioch that is hidden during the Dark Ages where they try to wipe it out and to persecute it. So he gives them the hidden manna. Manna is a type of the Word of God, Exodus chapter 16. And we'll give him a white stone. Probably the white stone is, uh, is, the, uh, is Christ himself. Because uh, Song of Solomon, he's said to be white. And he's a stone in Matthew 21, 42. He's a stone cut without hands in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45. And, uh, and so it talks about uh, a new name written in the stone. And that'd be a picture of somebody getting in Christ and getting a new name written down in glory. Probably. Probably. I was just saying, wasn't there like an old tradition like where like somebody that was guilty had a black stone and they got to trade it in for like a white stone or something like that? Well, it, it, that not, I mean, that's... This isn't because of that. That would be because of this, basically, yeah. So uh, one thing I want to draw your attention to here, and I think it's very, very important. It's back up in verse 13 again. Now, you probably have this. You probably, oh, I hope you haven't. But if you've forgotten how we got into this mess, let me refresh your memory. Through the writings and the teachings of the church fathers, Early on, we saw the first deviation from the absolute standard. Bible says that they left their first love. They didn't lose their first love. They left it. They walked away from the Word of God. And when they walked away from the Word of God, uh, everything goes down from here. One of the greatest principles, one of the greatest principles you have to learn, and it's true of your life, it's true of this church, and it's true of everything in Bible Christianity. It's the, one of the single greatest principles that I ever learned. The, the devil can't do anything in this world 
He can't do anything in any church. He can't do anything in your life and my life. People are always afraid about the devil. You know, well, the devil will do this. Or we talk about, well, the devil will, you know, in the world. Or the devil in, the, in getting into churches. The devil can never do anything in this world or any church and to any individual until saved men first deviate from that book. Once you leave the book and you leave your first love, he'll get you. Well, that's why I preach the book as hard as I do in the way I do. That's why I'd rather have you leave and the book stay. Because once you allow anything to come in where people deviate from the Word of God or the church deviates from what it does, then that's when the devil gets the upper hand. As long as a church, as an individual, or anybody, any country, the devil never would have had an end to start all of this damnable heresy if good, godly, saved men wouldn't have got self-righteous and prideful and deviated from what the book said. In other words, the devil only has access that we give him. You've got to see that. The devil only has access in what he is allowed to do by the, what, the access that we give him. And we give him that by the word of God. That's why when Jesus was confronted there in Matthew chapter 4 with the devil, when he showed up to tempt him, Jesus didn't argue with him. He didn't get into a theological discussion with him. He just simply quoted three words. It is written. And after three times, the devil left him. You know why? Because he knew that there was no advantage if you stay with the book. <laughs> we got to learn that, man. That's how this whole mess got going. It got going. Once they deviated from the Word of God, the efforts of the Gnostics and the demon-possessed actions of the Christian Roman Emperor Constantine, as this thing begins to move down through history and the official leaders of the body of Christ of saved people have rejected more than 75% of the Bible before Christianity is 300 years old. And then we wonder why what happened. You want to know why we're in the mess we're in today? Just look back and see what happened back there. They replaced the Bible with education from Rome, from Greek, from Egypt, from the Egyptian, philosophy, science, and tradition. And uh, it's not hard to see the same thing in Kansas City or any other city, but alas, the thing that men never learn from history is they never learn from history. Now, I want to show you something here. I've got a few minutes left. I'm going to show you something here that I want you to see. Now, the pilgrimage church period is a great turning point. It's a time when literally the church is married to the world. And uh, we read it down here when it said, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's name, Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now that little guy there named Antipas is one of the great mysteries in the Bible. There's never a reference to him in any place in the Bible anywhere. You'll never find anything about his life, his story, who he is, what he is. You can go through all the books on church history. His name will never came up. But there he is in verse 13, right in the middle of Pergamus church period, and that little mystery guy, Anipus. 
Anipus. I looked at Anipus for so many years and wondered, and all I got out of it was the fact that he was God's faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. He obviously was a real guy. But there's a reason why you don't have any history of him. There's obviously a reason why you don't have any, you, you can't track him down and really see who he was. You know why? Because animus represents you and me and what we ought to be doing in the day and age that we live in. It wasn't until about four or five years ago that I, and I don't know why I didn't do it before, that I've looked up what the name animus meant. You know what the name animus means? It means against everything. In the middle of the Pergamus church period, when the world is going to hell in a handbag and they're throwing out the word of God, the doctrine of God, the teachings of God, and they're coming up with all the damnable heresy that's going to destroy Christianity, one little guy stood up whose name meant he was against everything that was going on. He is a picture of what you and I ought to be doing and what this church ought to be doing in the day and age when the world is doing what it's doing to the Word of God. We as a church and what we teach and what we preach and what we believe ought not to care what people think about us, ought not to care what people say about us, ought not to care what, how the world or Christianity the other churches look at us. We have one job, and that is to be a faithful martyr like Anubis, and that simply means that we stand against everything that is against the Word of God, and that's what this little guy did. That's what he did. He held the line, and he was faithful right up to his death. Now, I don't know what the world holds for us, you know, things are changing so fast, and, you know, obviously it's, it's not good. But I'll tell you one thing, it's a thing where, it's things like this, when you come down through history and you see all that was taking place, you see what the devil's doing, you see the masterful stroke that he's, he's turning the whole world. He knows now that the world cannot be controlled through any one nation. He has to go through it, control it through all the nations, but he has to have a religion to do it. So he's going to turn Spain, France, Italy, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Russia. He's going to turn every country, North America, South America, Canada, every Africa, every place he goes, Australia, Everybody is either going to be under the control of a church-state religion of the Roman Catholic Church, the mother herself, or a byproduct of an offspring, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopalian, some other offshoot of the mother whore. But he's going to control the world through a church-state religion. And one little guy, one little guy in the midst of a whole mess, whose name simply means, I'm against everything that's against God, took the stand. I'll say it one more time. The devil can't do anything in this world, this church, or your life until you deviate from the, saved men deviate from the word of God, and then he has all that he needs to do. He cannot get around the book. And that's why before he could do what he does in getting preparation for the Antichrist, he had to get rid of it. And we'll see how that happens when we get to it. Well, just hold up there for tonight, and that'll give you enough to keep you going for a while and 